You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he is also the Founder and Executive Director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, and is on the core faculty at Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. When it comes to martyr accounts for Christians, one book probably is the first to come to mind, and that is Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is how John Fox opens this Christian classic. Christ our Savior in the Gospel of St. Matthew, hearing the confession of Simon Peter, who first of all other openly acknowledged him to be the Son of God, and perceiving the secret hand of his father therein, called him, alluding to his name, a rock, upon which rock he would build his church, so strong that the gates of hell should not prevail against it. In which words, three things are to be noted. First, that Christ will have a church in this world. Secondly, that the same church should mightily be impugned, not only by the world, but also by the uttermost strength and powers of all hell. And thirdly, that the same church, notwithstanding the uttermost of the devil and all his malice, should continue. John Fox then gives two reasons for his work. He says, first, that the wonderful works of God and his church might appear to his glory. Also that the continuance and proceedings of the church from time to time being set forth, more knowledge and experience may accrue thereby to profit the reader in edification of Christian faith. So Dr. Haken, as we transition now from our last episode, uh, where we were looking at Roman persecution and martyrdom in general and turning towards specific instances, did the early church share uh, Fox's uh, notion that these martyrdoms were to be instructions for Christian spirituality? Yes, I think so. I think um, you find that in the, for instance, in the introduction to the uh, martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas and the others who died of them, around 202 in the Carthaginian amphitheater. Um, the first chapter, which is done by an anonymous editor, some have thought it was Tertullian. I don't think so. I don't think the the general opinion of of, of um, uh, scholars who have studied this is it was not Tertullian. But it's, whatever the case in terms of its authorship, um, it's very clearly designed um, to edify um, and uh, the, the recounting of the deaths of the martyrs um, is seen as a vehicle for instruction. Um, I think the, the letter that I uh, sent from Lyon in 177, which is recorded for us um, in Eusebius of Caesarea's Church History, very possibly written by Irenaeus, um, that letter again, which records a very brutal, brutal um, bout of persecution in Lyon and Vienne, right next to it um, in uh, the Rhone Valley, in which probably 30 to 40 Christians died. Um, that also is, I think, um, sent uh, and written, again, for edification. And when one thinks that the early church recognized that martyrdom is a gift of the Spirit, building on a number of passages like First um, Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, um, passages like do not do not be afraid about what you'll say when you're taken before rulers and authorities but the spirit will give you words in in that hour um, those sort of passages led the early church to see the 
the the martyrdom as a gift of the spirit and as such therefore uh, a vehicle of edification and a vehicle of instruction there's a couple names that you have mentioned before that I want you to expound on for us a little bit. And that is uh, the account of Perpetua and Felicity. And I also want you to uh, give us a little bit about Blandina as well. And then if you could also speak to the significance of these martyrs being women. Yeah. Perpetua is um, North African. She's um, uh, a, citizen of Carthage. She's Roman. She's upper class, which means she's probably in the equestrian class, probably not senatorial. Um, but she's used to a life of, of ease. Um, she has been taught how to read and write in Greek and Latin. Um, we, we know that because she actually mentions that. That's very, very unusual. 2% of the Roman world, uh, 2% of the women in the Roman world uh, could read and write, and um, or at least could could read. Uh, the writing and reading were often separate skills. And so it's really quite remarkable that she can do both. Um, and she's led, um, you know, a, a fairly sheltered life. Her father, who appears in the account of her martyrdom, um, is v- deeply distressed by her obstinacy in clinging to the Christian faith um, in light of all the privileges that he had afforded her. And then the, the shame that he was she was bringing upon him. Um, the account that we have which is part of a larger account of the deaths of a number of martyrs, um, is the section that deals with Perpetua in particular is written in her own hand. And the editor mentions that, and it's chapter two where he indicates that he'll be now quoting from this handwritten account that she wrote in the prison. And what's remarkable about that is that um, women in the history of the world up until the 20th century um, in many ways, are the marginalized. Uh, they're forgotten. Um, millions upon millions have lived out their lives with not a shred of the memory of their even their names. Uh, just this week, I've been working on the life of um, of William Ward, the co the co worker with William Carey in India. And um, while the name of his father has come down, it was John Ward. Um, who died when William Ward was very young, the name of his mother, who was a very godly influence upon William, has not come down to us. And that's not too atypical. And especially when you're dealing with the ancient world, uh, we have very few accounts written by women in the ancient world. We have a travel log by Egira of her trip to Jerusalem. Um, We have a few snippets of philosophical stuff. Um, But generally speaking, when we here, when we read about women in the ancient world, uh, we're hearing the voice of a woman through the lips of a man. And what's so remarkable about the, the Perpetua account is that we, we're hearing Perpetua's own, own account of her imprisonment, her trial, um, her father's attempts to get her to, to deny her faith. Uh, they're very moving, deeply, deeply moving. She's 22 or thereabouts, so born around the year 180. Uh, there's no husband in the account. Um, I think he's dead um, because she's gone back to live with her parents. Uh, she's now under her father's authority again. Um, she has a baby. Um, and um, the Roman governor, Hilarianus, um, and as well as her father, who is not named, uh, both try to convince her to, to abandon her faith uh, for the sake of her baby. Her father uses um, deeply emotional 
uh, pleas that are based around the shame-honor kind of continuum, which doesn't make much sense to us today in our contemporary Western culture. And I think it's, I think we've lost something. Um, in other words, um, um, by obstinately committing, obstinately clinging to the Christian faith and refusing to deny Christ, uh, she was bringing shame upon the household. And um, her father says at one point, you know, if if you if you continue in this madness and folly, none of us will be able to go out into into public again. We'll never be able to speak again in the public square. And it's quite clearly, uh, you know, you, there's a choice here between shame and honor. And to be a Christian was utterly, totally shameful and shameful for the family. And but she persists by the spirit and the the. the the end pieces of the the, the account, the, the beginning and the, the kind of prologue and the epilogue very clearly indicate that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Blandina account is somewhat similar, although we don't hear Blandina speak in her own voice. Uh, she's being, her words and deeds are being written probably, as I said, by Irenaeus, who becomes the bishop. Um, it's a horrifying, it's one of the, it's, it's an account that's got one of the most horrifying texts in the literature of the ancient church because it describes how the Bishop of Lyon, um, the Roman town would be called Lugdunum after the Celtic God Lug. Um, the Bishop was a man named Pothinus, P O T H I N U S. And he was 90 or so. And he's, he's, he seized and dragged, literally dragged through the streets with bystanders doing all they can to kick him and punch him. And it's so horrifying because in the ancient world, the, the elder, the elders of the ancient Roman society were, were treated with enormous respect. Uh, the, the, the whole Roman cult of the genius was the worship of the spirit that inhabits your ancestors. And so ancestor worship to some degree is, is, you know, implicit in Roman religion. And love for one's ancestors, love for one's family, um, is just a, is absolutely bedrock to the whole Roman being. And to see this scene of an older man in 90 being literally dragged through the streets and bystanders punching and kicking him with venom and malevolence and hatred, it's just a horrifying scene. The only thing I think that's equivalent in our contemporary culture would be a woman, say, eight, nine months pregnant, being dragged, being boot, beaten and punched. Uh, it, it just, it just is, is it's just an offense against, against all that you would hold dear. And it gives you some idea that why the early church viewed persecution. Um, yes, on one hand, it's a gift of the spirit, uh, the martyrs. But the, on the other hand, the, the persecutions were set, set, set upon the church by, by Satan. And that the, the author of the, the, the letter to about the martyrs of Lyon, in which Blandina dies, um, talks about it being a Satan. Satan, the our adversary, swooped down upon us. Blandina is arrested and um, tortured and uh, dies in the arena, and uh, they they mock crucify her. And it's uh, it, the the author says that a number of the 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 figures, a number of the early Christians who were dying in the arena, looked upon the crucified figure of, of Blandina and saw not her per se, but their savior. And it's a very significant, it's a very significant scene because it reminds us 
that while some of the ancient accounts of martyrs make the martyr the hero, in the best of those accounts, uh, the Lord Jesus is the hero. And it's Christ's fortitude given by the Spirit. And it's Christ's uh, strength and perseverance uh, that enables these men and women uh, to go through just horrific, absolutely horrific experiences uh, and persevere in their faith. Yes, that actually leads into uh, the next question, actually, which is uh, because you mentioned Pothinus and his death and how his death actually leads to the installment of Irenaeus as the Bishop of Lyon. Correct. Um, are, 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 do we ever see a practice from the empire that uh, where they go to target bishops or theologians? And if so, who? I'm thinking uh, specifically men that come to mind or men like Polycarp in origin. Or is the death of some of these figures and leaders more incidental? Yeah, by the time that you hit the mid-second century, third century, sorry, um, this is the uh, the persecution of Decius, which comes after a long period of peace. Um, if I recall correctly, one of the Roman emperors, Philip the Arab, um, I think had certainly um, inclinations towards Christianity. But there's, uh, he's, he's emperor in, the, in this period between Septimius Severus in the early 200s and uh, Decius in 247-248. There is a long period of peace. Uh, Origen in one of his homilies mentions this. He's in Caesarea and he talks about how he's speaking to a generation. He said, none of you have known persecution, but he said, trust me, um, it's coming. And sure enough, it comes. And uh, in the persecution of Decius, one of the edicts that is passed is the seizure of all the leading bishops in the empire that are known to the to, to the state um, in the major cities and a number are seized and um, Cyprian for example in Carthage there's a crowd going around the city yelling uh, Cyprian to the lion and Cyprian actually goes into hiding and hears he hears a mob passing wherever he's in hiding yelling this um, and uh, this becomes standard policy um, and by, by the time you hit the mid-200s the Roman state has realized you know destroying Christianity, they need, they need to destroy the ability to worship, they need to seize the scriptures, um, and they need to kill the leaders. And those, those three things become central to persecution and perse- powers of perse- that persecute down through the centuries. The destruction of leadership, the destruction of the scriptures, and the, the, the preventing Christians gathering uh, for worship. And so, yes, there is a distinct policy um, and in the, for instance, in the um, Diocletianic persecution, which begins in 303, runs through to about 311 in the Eastern Roman Empire, um, significant numbers of bishops are killed um, and others maimed um, significantly. And um, so you, you do have a number of bishops die early, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, uh, Pothinus, um, but I don't think that there's an actual policy to seize the bishops in the second century. Um, but it certainly becomes part and policy, part, part part of Roman persecution policy in the third. Yes, I'm glad you brought up uh, one figure who can be a little bit controversial, and that is uh, Cyprian, 
who himself during persecution went into hiding while his congregation was being uh, persecuted. And if you could just kind of spell out how he justified his actions, how he justified going into hiding, and then also what was the advice that he gave uh, to the church regarding how to treat those who had lapsed during this time? Yeah, so I mean, there have been some who've said that persecution brings um, brings unity to the church. Um, I'm sure it does in some cases. It's not a universal rule. It certainly didn't in the DCM persecution. Um, Cyprian Cyprian was very convinced that um, if you were seized by Roman authorities, you obviously had to stand firm for Christ. But you didn't have to be foolish and give yourself up, unlike Tertullian. Tertullian had argued that the Spirit never causes a believer to flee from persecution. Of course, he's got a problem in that regard because Christ himself says if they persecute him once, that he flee to the next. And so Tertullian would argue that that was was a a mandate given only for that period. Um, It was not a, a, a maxim for all time. Um, but having said that, Cyprian um, is eventually arrested. But in the, during the DCM persecution in the 240s, um, he does go into hiding. He argues that the Spirit led him into hiding. So he counters those who argued, you know, the Spirit always, following Tertullian, the Spirit always leads those uh, uh, who are in authority to persecution. In other words, uh, rather than running from the fire, we should run to the fire. Um, and he says, no, no, the Spirit told me to leave. And um, he says, uh, you know, I, I'm 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 guiding the sh- through through the, through God's calling. I've been given the oversight to guide the the, the church like a ship. And um, if the navigator or the helmsman is gone, uh, who will guide the ship? And um, so during the DCM persecution, he's after the after it's over, he's got a problem. And the problem is that there had been a number of Christians who had lapsed, committed apostasy. They had come back to the church, repented. And how then to receive them back? Should what, what should what should there what, what uh, discipline should there be? Should there be any? There were some who argued, uh, in fact, on the basis of a man named Paul, who was a martyr, Paul before he died. Had said, if the, if there are Christians who lapse and commit apostasy, um, they're to be forgiven for the sake of Paul. In other words, for him, for his sake, and his committing his life and giving his life for Christ, uh, they would be kind of forgiven for 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 that act of sacrifice. Um, and uh, there were others who had actually uh, one of the ways in which the the Roman state sought to persecute the church was everybody had to sacrifice to the gods and get a a, a document, a libellus. Uh, to dem- demonstrate that they had done so. And there were some who had new people who wrote the de- labelli, um, and um, they got uh, forged documents that said they had sacrificed the gods, but they hadn't. Uh, they become known as the la- la- labellatiki. And so you've got these two groups on the one hand, the lapsi and the labellatiki, uh, both of whom are fundamentally have committed some sort of sin of denial of Christ. Um, then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the rigorists. And one of my favorite figures from the third century, Novatian of Rome, finds himself in that camp. 
Um, and they denied the possibility of forgiveness for anybody who had apostatized. The Labelli, sorry, the Labellatiki and the Lapsi uh, could not be forgiven in this world. They might be in the next, but they would be. They could come back, come back to church, but they would never be able to to hold church office ever again or partake of the table. And they had to demonstrate a posture of repentance, a mourning. And um, so you have this one element of the rigorists, and at the other end you've got the the the, the kind of advocates of cheap grace, as uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer might use that term. And then in the middle you have Cyprian trying to 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 establish a via media or via media, in which yes, um, of course people can be forgiven. Uh, Jesus forgave Peter. Um, but they can't just waltz in on the basis of, oh, yeah, well, Paul died for me. I mean, who who is Paul? <laughs> you know, uh, no, no, no. That, uh, Paul's death was, you know, salutary in the sense of uh, it was a good example of steadfastness for for the cause of Christ. But uh, he, he died. He didn't. His death doesn't affect the forgiveness of anybody else. And so there had to be a, a, a process of restoration, which would take time. And it might take a number of years. And the, the number of years, and uh, Cyprian, I think, starts, you know, 10 years of restoration, five years, then two. And it, 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 the, the amount of time is not as important in one sense as the recognition that uh, you, you, you just can't, number one, you can't just waltz in and say, hey, God, forgive me. You need to forgive me, too. And then secondly, um, those who say, well, no, there's no forgiveness. Um, somewhere there's a balance in the middle and the recognizing the recognition that Christ does forgive sins uh, even the sin of a uh, even that sort of sin of denial of Christ and you can be forgiven and redeemed uh, restored rather and so uh, Cyprian I think is very very helpful here in trying to to carve out a, a, a biblical via media um, he does get arrested in 257 um, and is under house arrest for about a year and then is publicly executed um, in 258. And so he does die as a martyr. Um, but again, I think he demonstrates um, his whole perspective on martyrdom and and um, and uh, persecution is, is just so biblical, especially in light of the fact that the leading figure and the leading theologian in, in, in his circles in North Africa would have been Tertullian. Um, he's dead by this time, probably. But his influence, he casts a huge shadow. And uh, Cyprian used to refer to him as my master in the sense of, you know, it's just a, just a, a very master thinker. Um, but on this area, Cyprian radically disagreed with this, uh, with Tertullian. As we bring this week's episode to a close, what is it that marks the end of the era of the martyrs, specifically the end of the martyrs as the apotheosis of Christian spirituality and what ends up replacing it. Yeah. So once the church is no longer being persecuted, you really don't have martyrs in that sense. So, so um, 313 is the edict of Milan, which grants toleration to Christianity. And by 382, you basically have uh, all other religions, Apart from the Trinitarian nature, the Trinitarian faith of the Christian church uh, um, outlawed. Um, you do have, I mean, you do have uh, Christians, um, men like Basil of Caesarea, uh, threatened with uh, exile by 
heretical emperors like Arian emperors like Valens. Um, Hilary of Poitiers is kicked out by Constantius II. Um, Alex, Athanasius of Alexandria undergoes persecution because of his commitment to the deity, full deity of Christ, by again by by Constantius, uh, by Julian the Apostate, etc., and by Valens. Um, but it's certainly not the same sort of martyrdom that you have where pagans are killing Christians. Um, it is persecution, but it's we we don't have any martyrs to Arianism except for one. Um, Eusebius of Samosata in 380 um, had been exiled by Valens and was returning from exile, and he entered a town in what is now eastern Turkey to be involved in an ordination and an Aryan woman whipped a, um, a roof tile at his head and killed him and as he was dying he repeated Stephen's words uh, that those who were around him would not do anything to the woman but that he personally forgave her um, and so what you then have is a, is a, is a crisis of identity in the fourth century in the in the second and first, second and th- second and third centuries, the church is able to define herself as that as the church of the martyrs. We are those who um, have committed our lives so to Christ that we're willing to die for Him, and the martyr's body then becomes really the boundary of the church between between the church and the world, or the church and Roman culture. But once the church is embraced by the Roman state as a legal religion, and then embraced as the only religion, you then have an I- identity crisis. What does it mean to be a Christian? Um, the martyr, very few people died as martyrs, but the martyr could always be held up as a model. This is what it means to be a Christian. Um, it's it's the, the, the martyr, the martyr typifies the church against the world. Uh, the martyr typifies the radical nature of being a Christian. Um, all of that changes with the embrace of Christianity by the Roman state. And um, it creates a, a, an identity crisis, it creates all kinds of problems. But one of them is identity crisis. And the answer, the answer is found in uh, monasticism. The monk becomes a, as the Irish Celtic church would put it, a white martyr. Um, he's, they're, they're not martyrs by blood, but they nonetheless are martyrs. They, they die to self. They, they die to worldliness. They die to riches. They die to comfort. Uh, they die to the accumulation of stuff. Uh, they die to marriage. Um, it's, they die to pleasure, etc., etc., etc. And they are now white martyrs. And they're so the monk, the monk slash nun. The term nun is a medieval term; it's not used in the early period. But there are women who commit themselves to this celibate lifestyle of simplicity and austerity. Uh, people like Macrina, the sister of Basil of Caesarea. Um, they then become the model, and so you you it it it's in some ways it the 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 martyr the 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 martyr as the epitome epitome of of spirituality is problematic because it creates two levels of spirituality the martyr and then everybody else. And hence, you have Tertullian saying, you know, if you if persecution comes, you you have to flee towards you have to run towards persecution. Um, because it for him is the it, it it's the only type of spirituality he can even envisage. Um, as I said, not all follow many don't follow him. Cyprian doesn't. The author of the Mar- Martyrdom of Polycarp doesn't. 
But again, uh, you have a two-tier spirituality, which gets carried over into the uh, monastic world. Um, so the monk is the true, truly spiritual person. And this is a spirituality which will last for a thousand years. And while there is a lot to be said for thinking about monastic piety in terms of simplicity, um, zeal for the gospel, etc., there, there are, there are all kinds of problems which we'll, we're not going to look at primarily in this uh, series of lectures because we're going up to Ralph Brothy Constantine. But monasticism introduces a two-tier model of spirituality. Um, but the monk, the monk becomes the, the model of piety uh, for the world that has embraced Christianity as, as the, the only legal religion. Beat is co-hosted by Caleb Anthony Neal and is produced in partnership with the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, an historical research center at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that seeks to promote the study of Baptist history and theological reflections on its contemporary significance. For more by Dr. Haken, follow him on his substack at Historia Ecclesiastica. Links are in the description. We'll see you next time on Bede.